0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Adali na Chopper's Politics
2: Ukraine is going to be his undoing, I have no doubt. How long it takes, who knows?
3: I'm Christopher Hope, The Telegraph's Associate Editor, and this is Chopper's Politics. At the top of this podcast, you heard Alessia Kromachuk, the director of the Ukrainian Institute in London, saying our usual intro to this show, coming up on Chopper's Politics, but this time in Ukrainian. And the war in Ukraine is a theme of this podcast. Later, we'll be hearing from Alessia and her reaction to what's happening in her homeland and how the West has responded. And we'll be talking to Tory MP Nikki Akin, who's leading the charge on the Tory backbenches for it to be easier for those fleeing the conflict to come to the UK. But first, the first reaction to seeing a bloodshed in Ukraine is how on earth can this end? And the only person who can do that is Vladimir Putin, hundreds of miles away in Moscow. What's troubling Western leaders right now is what will stop him. So I thought to get a handle on how Russian leaders might think and how the end might come, I spoke to Lord Owen, David Owen, the former Labour Foreign Secretary, who has met many former Soviet and Russian leaders to get his perspective. Lord Owen, you were Foreign Secretary in the late 70s and you met Soviet leaders then, didn't you? When you look at the way Vladimir Putin is behaving, what do you think?
2: He's very, very different. I mean, I met with Brezhnev when he was aging, but he was still dignified, actually quite well informed, but rather slow speaking, and possibly had a voice defect, some maybe cancer of the throat. Gromyko, although the oldest foreign minister, was very much on the ball, extremely, courteous. He came out to the airport to meet me at the bottom of the steps, drove in with me to Moscow, pointed out an iron cross, uh, which was a a model of a a tank trap, and said, that's how far the German panzers came. And when you get uh, irritated with me for not being very responsive on mutual balance force reductions, that's the reason I'm not taking any more risks. Uh, it was quite impressive performance. He could also be very tough. And he thought that our signature on the 1975 conference on, uh, in Europe, uh, that that had meant that we accepted that Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania would stay into the Soviet Union's relationships. And we said no, and I said no, and it was tough. And he went back and back on this issue. I got the feeling that Gromyko had persuaded the Politburo to sign up for the courts in 1975. But he was um, a serious negotiator. Looking at Putin, I think he's a very different kettle of fish in almost every way.
3: In in what way? I mean, is he more isolated than the leaders you met in the 70s?
2: Well, look, I think he's changed. I've never had a one-on-one meeting with him, but I've been in the room with him. I was there at the banquet in Buckingham Palace in 2003 when he came over. Even then, there was a sort of feeling that this is a person who you could have dialogue with. I think in the last two years, there's been a substantial change in this man's approach, maybe a little longer than that. But if you compare how carefully he prepared the way with Russian opinion for taking uh, the Crimea and the two regions of Russian speakers in Ukraine, a lot of preliminary discussion, debate came as no shock or surprise. Absolutely nothing. And still, Russians are not being told that this is an invasion of Ukraine. And still, Russians are surprised when they discover what's really happening and soldiers writing home, soldiers ringing up home. It's beginning, I think, to create a very serious backlash. I think Putin's in trouble. Whether he's in trouble with the military yet, I don't know. That's the only force that could topple him. If the military felt they had been their reputation had been sullied, they'd been taken on a false expedition, false promises, it is just possible they might turn against putin but i i wouldn't I wouldn't give great hopes for that, I think he's going to be very, very difficult to dislodge from power. Ukraine is going to be his undoing. I have no doubt how long it takes. Who
3: knows? It's completely shocking. I mean, and this idea of um, you don't think if generals took him out, if you cut the head off a snake, you can't be sure that would be the end of it. That's your worry as well.
2: Well, if they took Putin out, then I think it's no doubt they could install a, a rational government. I mean, I, I think it, you cannot stop reiterating our problem is not with the Russian people our problem is with its leadership and actually increasingly one particular person he's got some um, close confidence of course but uh, I think they'll desert him it's really farcical watch these heads of government go and put up with this massive long table I must confess, I I think I would just refuse to meet in these circumstances. It's not a proper dialogue. I think there's a Huge shift of public opinion and governments are responding. I mean, look at the German government, helped, of course, by being a new government and uh, a social democratic government, but it's quite phenomenal the changes that uh, Chancellor Scholz has made. I mean, they're now increasing their defense budget, which, of course, they should have done 20 years ago. And they are taking really tough decisions, taking oligarchs on, and becoming really a serious, committed member of NATO.
3: Lord Owen, given your, your long view of history, how do you think Boris Johnson has done?
2: I think during this uh, flare-up and the whole question of how to deal with the Ukraine incident, he's handled it well. And I think that he's given Britain a distinctive position within, above all else. NATO, and he's made his commitments. His defense secretary has operated well, I think, too. And I think that we've been a very leading figure in NATO's response. And I think that has been well handled. And I think that uh, his own personal uh, flying out to uh, Ukraine Flying out to Estonia, giving confidence to Estonia, authorising the increase in British troops in Estonia and also in Poland. I think he's done well.
3: And, and just finally, Lord Owen, if, if I may, how do you see this ending? I won't use the term off-ramp, which is an Americanism, but but what is the exit? How can the West create a situation where Putin can withdraw I mean, I can't see it, but can you?
2: I think you've always got to look for ways in which he could withdraw. For example, if China has abstained now twice—first in the Security Council and then in the General Assembly—those are very significant decisions to distance themselves from Russia. But if they were to come in with a helpful initiative to bring peace, I think that would be much easier for Putin to accept. So I don't think any of us should do anything other than encourage China's active participation in the diplomacy of trying to get both the war to stop in and the Russian troops to be withdrawn. Now, it's a big call. I'm not saying that uh, China's going to rush in, but they've already indicated to the Russian and particularly to Putin, that he has not got their automatic support to do whatever he likes. And they have links with um, Ukraine. They have bought grain and other things from Ukraine. And it's always been hitherto a Chinese policy in the UN that you respect the sovereignty of a nation. So that has been their abiding principle. So they have been upset by uh, Putin's actions. As to anybody else intervening, I don't think that would be very... uh, People exaggerate the oligarch's uh, influence on him. He just tries to take money from them, but I don't think they are influential in the politics. Who is? Some of his old KGB friends, they're busy making money. I'm not sure that they're influential or would try to go against him. I think he is responsible for building up the army and bringing self-respect back to the army. He's got a close relationship with the defense minister, but there are other serious senior generals which there's some indication there is rumblings. No general likes his troops being humiliated, and that's beginning to be seen in Ukraine. And if they don't have confidence in the project, And I don't think they like this scare story that he started about using nuclear weapons. They know the score. And on nuclear weapons, the United States has a massive, massive uh, advantage over Russia. God help us from a nuclear exchange. But that was the most worrying thing that he said. He didn't actually use the words, but there was no doubt about his mind. And his mind frame on nuclear weapons is more dangerous than I think any Russian leader. I mean, I've taken nuclear weapons very seriously ever since I was Minister for the Navy with Polaris. And I think it's still a great danger. And this man is a danger over nuclear weapons. And I think the generals, they know what will happen to Russia. They know what will happen to their own families if they ignite a nuclear war. And they don't like it. And I think they'll stop him.
3: Well, Lord Owen, on that sobering point, thank you so much for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you, so All the best to you. Thank you. Thank you. Right, do stay with us, listeners. In just one moment, we'll be talking to the director of the Ukrainian Institute in London about a war that's gone on much longer than the news coverage in the West might suggest and losing her brother in that conflict. Right after this.
0: We're interrupting this podcast to bring you news of another Telegraph show we think you might like. It's called Planet Normal, and it's hosted by me, Liam Halligan,
3: and me, Alison Pearson. We're both Telegraph columnists who share the view that far too often those who shout the loudest on the telly just don't
4: represent
0: the views of normal people. So take a trip with us to Planet Normal. We're joined by some stellar guests, well-known voices from politics, business and the arts
3: all from different fields but they have one thing in common they're at the top of their game but
4: distinctly down to earth
3: the good news is I finally learned what a podcast is and even how you subscribe to it it's actually quite simple search for planet normal on your podcast app or click on the link in the show notes for this episode
0: you don't really know what a podcast is do you
3: I am one look I am one who needs to know what it is I am one okay shut up Now, earlier this week, listeners, I thought I'd head down to the Ukrainian Cathedral of the Holy Family near Bond Street Station in Central London, and there I met Alessia Kromanchuk, the director of the Ukrainian Institute in London. Alessia, hi. Hi. I'm wearing my Dynamo Kiev uh, scarf yeah, here.
1: Yeah, I can see
3: that. That's this great. is for you, yeah. Alessia. Welcome to Choppers Politics.
1: Thank you for having me on. Thanks for inviting me.
3: Of course, and, and we met last night, didn't we, in the Ukrainian Cathedral? where services were going on, and it was deeply moving, and I saw the sunflower seeds, which had been placed on the altar by by, um, the Prince of Wales. Can you explain why sunflower seeds are so important to the Ukrainians?
1: Yeah, well, sunflowers—a flower—is important and it acquired kind of new importance recently. So, in 2020, President Zelensky introduced a new commemorative day uh, to commemorate the soldiers fallen in this war that started in 2014. It's uh, marked on the 29th of August, and the reason why it's marked on that day and the the symbol that was chosen as a sunflower is because on the 29th of August in 2014, really fierce battles were being fought in Ilovaisk in Donetsk region, and lots and lots of Ukrainian soldiers were killed in those battles and they essentially fell, um, they they died in those sunflower fields. So sunflower was adopted as a symbol of mourning and grief, um, but it has a longer history as well. In uh, 1996, defense ministers of Ukraine, Russia and the US planted sunflower seeds on the former a nuclear missile base in Ukraine to mark Ukraine's um, uh, decommissioning of nuclear weapons so that was really a really important moment to say right this is a new era this is a peaceful era it's really painful and ironic to think about it really now given that putin is threatening the world with nuclear weapons
3: and we we saw uh, one of your country women confronting the Russian soldier saying, "I'm going to give you sunflower seeds to put in your pockets, and they'll grow from your
1: corpse." It's become a symbol of defiance now as well. A totally unarmed woman comes with sunflower seeds and confronts an armed soldier. Um, and sunflower seeds also have a kind of cultural meaning for us as well. It's a sort of popcorn uh, replacement we use, you know, to sit down and watch uh, a, a favorite, uh, some kind of mind-numbing series. So you know, it's it's something you you do for fun. But she comes and uses it as essentially the only weapon that she has, uh, confronted by this really fully armed soldier that invaded her city.
3: Now You mentioned that 2014 um, and you've written a really moving book which came out last year called A Loss, the story of a dead soldier told by her sister. What's your book about?
1: It's about my brother's death and about my brother's life. My brother Volodya volunteered in 2015 to join the Ukrainian armed forces to fight in the East. And he fought for nearly two years and he was killed in action in 2017 in Luhansk region. Um, that loss was so difficult to process that I decided to try and process it by writing. I mean, it's the only thing that I sort of know how to do. And I tried to, to process it that, that way. So I, I I I've tried to write about his life as well as his his death at the front line, because for, for me, he's, you know he became forever militarized as a fallen soldier in this war. But I also wanted to remember him, the man he was, an artist, a traveler. He spent a lot of his time over a decade in, in Western Europe and then returned to, to my hometown and eventually went to war. So it was really important for me to process my grief, also lend my voice to people who have already lost their loved ones in this war, but are not able to write about it or speak about it and especially speak to western audiences my priority really was to raise awareness about this war with this book and i feel like i have failed uh, entirely because well the, n- nobody I, at the moment i feel a little bit like you know we have been abandoned for eight years very few people paid attention to this war and it's not until this recent development the full-on invasion that the world started to take us seriously
3: and so from your point of view, you see the Russian invasion last Thursday as a continuation of this war that started in 2014, don't you?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's just I mean, it's something that Putin has been talking about just in different ways. I also think that it's not just a continuation of his um, aggression against Ukraine, it's also respond to Western inaction. When he illegally annexed Crimea, he uh, completely, you know, disregarded international law. And there were very, very few consequences, Barely any consequences. You know, there's this joke in Ukraine that the only consequence that the West showed was deep concern. And deep concern does not bother Putin, as we know. Then the Russian aggression started in Donbass. Again, almost no consequences. So, of course, he responded to this. And I think here in the West, and in international community and especially political leadership need to realize their role in the fact that we are witnessing what we're witnessing now because there was complete inaction for eight years.
3: And of course now we're seeing a million refugees now have left Ukraine, I think was the overnight figure. The big debate is is how many should come here. And you you saw that defence by Priti Patel saying there are some restrictions on those who can come here for security reasons. That makes you question how we view security, right? Uh,
1: The comments that we're hearing from the government about Ukrainian refugees are quite insulting to be honest the, the very first comment that we heard about that they can come here and apply to pick fruit and veg the country's at war residential areas are being shelled constantly hospitals ambulances kindergartens people are dying in huge numbers already and to make that comment was simply irresponsible in my view I,
3: I, on that point I mean the, the minister who said that Kevin Foster did actually delete that yeah, well, that message on social media so he did uh, recant it in that sense
1: yes but it, it shows like but a it was step,
3: said yeah he shows them maybe uh, not thinking through properly
1: and in terms of security threat well how about thinking of the security threats that already exist in this country and these are you know um, the still heavy presence of russian oligarchs and their money that is influencing political situation inside the country these people who are parking their money in london are interested in the sort of government that will protect their wealth and they in return protect the wealth of russian elites in Russia that are making this war possible. And unless the UK government goes after these people, sanctions them fully, sanctions the enablers as well, accountants, bankers, uh, lawyers that enable this money to be here, we will not see any change in Putin's strategies. At the moment he comes to these, his, his ministers, who have come to these negotiations with the Ukrainian government, issuing just completely unreasonable ultimatums. The only way he will actually start to negotiate ceasefire is if Russia's completely crippled If his regime is crippled, then he has to negotiate ceasefire. And UK government can put that pressure and it's not doing it. Can you explain why
3: it is women and children coming here and why men are staying in Ukraine?
1: Yes, of course. I don't think a lot of people here realise that there's general mobilisation issued in Ukraine, which makes it illegal for... All who are fit to fight to leave the country. So
3: illegal. So you can be jailed or, or imprisoned if you try and Indeed.
1: leave. You'll be stopped on the border and sent to
3: jail, um, arrested. And, and and. that's why women and children are going on the trains first. We're seeing it on the, on the TV pictures, but it's never explained why that is.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so men between the ages of 18 and 60 and, and some over 60 as well, and actually quite a lot of women who are in occupations, which oblige them for military conscription at times of war, are not legally allowed to leave the country. The only people who are leaving the country are the most vulnerable people. Also, even those people who are not obliged to join the army are staying. I see all of my friends staying, mm. helping the volunteers. And that's women
3: and men. Women and men are staying. Exactly, you
1: exactly. Everybody's uh, staying.
3: And, and that goes to the heart of the point about th- th- this country has been debating immigration for decades. But this is different because people are still tired to Ukraine. It's not as though people want to come here and settle here and it puts pressure on local services. Absolutely.
1: And also, there's a huge Ukrainian community here already. Some people came during and after the Second World War, some more recently in the 90s and 2000s, and we are all prepared to look after our citizens here. The, the question of them being a burden on society is not really a question that should be discussed.
3: We, we have thousands of listeners to this podcast. What can they do to help? Should they be boycotting Russian produce? I mean, they can't really dictate where their petrol station buys its oil and gas, can they? But they can do things themselves, which, which may help Ukraine in its hour of need.
1: Well, well, I think they really need to stay informed and really find out what this crisis can mean for them. And here, uh, this war in particular can mean for them here. And here I'd like to point to the fact that you know uh, stopping Russia from shelling Ukraine is our duty here as well. Because if the Russian troops hit a target such as one of the la- well the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, which is in Zaporizhia Oblast in eastern Ukraine, that has been heavily shelled at the moment, we will have an absolute environmental catastrophe of European scale. And that 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 would mean not just refugees coming here. It would mean European displacement. It would be a disaster for us all. So stay informed. Understand that this is affecting us here. It's affecting our democracy here and apply pressure on your political representatives.
3: What do you feel when you hear the UK say they can't support a NATO no-fly zone because of the risk of direct conflict with Russian fighters?
1: I feel like they are not learning their lessons. They've had all of this intelligence about Putin attacking, and they didn't do anything to prevent him from doing so for the fear of provoking him, right? And he, without provoking him, he attacked anyway. And I feel like that lesson is not being learned. They should begin to think now that Putin is threatening NATO countries, that he will take revenge on NATO countries as well. He might wish to build a corridor to Kaliningrad, and that would go through Lithuania. It would affect Poland. He might attack NATO countries in other ways. Why aren't we preparing for this?
3: And just finally, your leader, Vladimir Zelensky, has won huge credit for the way he's conducted himself, was a, an actor or a comedian in the past, and he's, he's risen to his position, hasn't he, in the leadership he's showing your countrymen?
1: Absolutely. We need to remember that he was elected um, by an absolutely vast majority of the population, something we've not seen in Ukraine before, and also in free and democratic elections, an absolute nightmare for Vladimir Putin. And he lost his popularity very quickly in Ukraine as well. Ukrainians are very quick to be, get disillusioned with their political leadership. But as this invasion unfolded, he took a stance to definitely defend Ukrainian sovereignty, to do everything possible to rally into national support as well. And of course, the population is completely behind them.
3: Kramachuk, thank you so much for joining us today on Troubles Politics. It's been great to have you on and uh, sending you you and your countrymen all, all the very best from this podcast. Thank
1: you very much.
3: Now, so far in this Ukrainian crisis, Boris Johnson's government has been given plaudits from left and right for its leadership on the world stage. But one, I would argue, misstep has occurred over the way the government has treated the prospect of thousands of migrants coming from Ukraine fleeing the conflict. At the weekend, one minister suggested they could work on farms picking fruit, and then the Home Secretary thought there could be a security risk. But by Tuesday, Priti Patel was back at the dispatch box in the House of Commons, announcing new ways for Ukrainians to get to Britain as they flee the conflict. Now, one of the Tory MPs who has forced the government to reconsider its approach towards the oncoming Ukrainian migration caused by the conflict is Nicky Aitkin, the MP for the cities of London and Westminster. I want to welcome to our gallery the Ukraine ambassador. Your Excellency. We generally do not allow applause in this chamber. (laughs) (laughs) But on this occasion, the House quite rightly... Well, Nicky Atkin, hear, hear to that.
4: Absolutely. It was incredibly moving. Uh, And I think you saw the best of Parliament during the worst of times. It it leaves you speechless and it sends a real tingle down your spine that, you know, whatever our arguments are in our Parliament... And, you know, we have had a lot of arguments in our parliament, particularly over recent months. You know, when it really matters, we do come together. We believe in our democracy, no matter what our political party, we believe in our freedom and our democracy. And that was clear yesterday. And
3: that's what this war's about. It's democracy against, well, somebody trying to impose their will over a democratic country. It's unbelievable, isn't it?
4: Yeah, and I think someone like me, I'm a 53-year-old, and I remember those dark, dark days of the... Early 80s, when I was, you know, an early teenager and seeing that. And my children are that age now. And it's really important that we of that generation tell our children about those awful times, about what the Soviet invasions of so many different countries meant to the people of those countries and the freedom they have enjoyed for the last 30 years. Mm. And, you know, we know that so many. Ukrainians, people from the uh, from the Baltic states and, and, and the rest of Eastern Europe have been born during those three days. And now the the future of Ukrainians is just so in the balance.
3: And how, do, how have you rated the UK government response? It's been a bit on the issue of them of the refugee crisis. We hear overnight as a million people have now fled Ukraine. That's mainly women and children because. Anyone who can fight is mandated to stay. And that's why it is vulnerable people leaving. When you hear Priti Patel talk about a security risk of people coming here, when you hear um, the Immigration Minister talking about jobs on fruit-picking farms, what do you think?
4: Look, the first priority, the first role of a government is to protect its citizens and our country. And I absolutely appreciate the security uh, priority for the government. But this is not business as usual, immigration. This is not a mass economic migration. This is not young men in boats. This is a crisis of war. And as you say, this is women, children and elderly people who are coming. And it, it does remind me, and obviously, you know, I wasn't there in the, in the 1930s, but it is about what happened in the 1930s where millions of people were displaced for Ten years in some cases, um, in in some in some countries. So, we've got to respond in the best way we can and provide safe haven. You know, I was really uh, exercised over the weekend, and that's why I wrote the letter.
3: Yeah, um, this letter the... went to Boris Johnson. Yeah, signed by forty three members of the of the One Nation Caucus, which is the kind of moderate Tory. If there's a wing, it's a moderate wing, isn't it, the Tory yeah. Party? Yeah. And what what did that letter say?
4: Well, we recognise the outstanding work that the government has done so far. And I really passionately believe that the Prime Minister has led from the front with the economic and diplomatic sanctions that have so quickly come in, you know, unprecedented, so quickly. And, he, and I really believe he has brought the free world together and we recognise that. But again, we, we just wanted to reiterate that this is not an immigration crisis in, that we've seen before. And it's not even about... You know, what we saw with the Afghan resettlement programme or with the Syrian resettlement programme, those people are coming here to resettle, to rebuild their lives. But in Ukraine, it is very different. It is about temporary safe haven until Putin realises mm. what he's done and withdraws his troops and peace can then be restored. And to
3: be fair to Boris Johnson, he got your letter... And then went along to the meeting. Came to see
4: us and absolutely got it. So he
3: gave you a reassurance on on, on Monday night. What did he say?
4: Yeah, he gave us reassurance that he understood our concerns. He shares our concerns, you know. Here's a father of two young children, as well as he's got older children, obviously. But he's got two young children and, and a wife who, you know, they would be displaced. So he gets it. He gets the human side of this. And so he reassured us that the policies were on its way. And obviously we heard on Tuesday from the Home Secretary. Is that enough? Look, it is a start. It's a first step. Um, the Home Secretary said herself in the Commons that, you know, they were constantly reviewing I mean, it.
3: She said sponsored places by by companies, by churches. They widened Individuals. Individuals, indeed. And they widened the definition, didn't they, yeah. of, of family members. Is that enough?
4: Well, it's a start, isn't it? And I think, again, I, I do uh, accept that the vast majority of people who are fleeing want to stay in the region. The, the women there want to stay there, but they want to be as near as they can to their uh, husbands and fathers. And
3: So, yes, so it's not going to be as many as 200,000 coming here. even.
4: No, but also, but also they've come. got so many, obviously because of the region, they've got so many family connections already in Poland. And I've heard today on the news about people in Germany with uh, yeah. friends and relatives who are on the border driving there.
3: What did you think when you heard Edward Lee, the Tory MP for Gainsborough, telling the Commons that we've done our bit on immigration from eastern europe
4: i was it's very hard because i do not want to criticise a fellow conservative mp I think you can sometimes i think i can sometimes yeah and i was just disappointed and you know i was sitting at the back i think he was i think he received more opposition from behind him than he did in front and you know i was with simon hall and uh, Siobhan bailey and others and <sighs> This is not about immigration. It is not about economic migration. It is about a crisis of war. These people are not coming for jobs. They are coming to flee Russian bombs, Russian artillery fire. They are fleeing for their lives. And that means we need a completely different response. I, I watch those, those pictures, Chris, and I just think... What would I do in that situation?
3: Do you think that the Tory party's response is because the migrants are people, are European? You know, maybe um, that people can't relate in the same way to people fleeing from, from the Middle East or from Afghanistan. Is, is that part of why the Tory party responded to this crisis differently, to other crises?
4: No, I don't. I think it's more because this war is on our, literally on our doorstep. It reminds us of what happened 70 years ago on our continent. And I think we're just incredulous that it could happen in the 21st century. And I also think that social media and the fact that we are seeing a minute by minute what the Russians are doing, you know, bombing maternity hospitals, bombing schools, bombing universities, bombing people's homes, that... It brings it home to us. That that could be us. These are people just like us, as, as they are and in the rest of the world.
3: that's why it's cut through.
4: Yeah. But it is on our doorstep. It is two hours flight. And I also think that we've had, we have so many Ukrainian friends, neighbours, work colleagues in this country that you know that the Russian aggression is not just a, a pitted against the Ukrainians, it is a pitted against the free world.
3: And Nikki I can just, just finally for, for listeners to this, w- what do you think people can do at home when they watch the pictures on, on the TV? We know that the UK can't support a NATO engagement over Ukraine to avoid World War Three, essentially, because we'd be putting our jets in direct conflict with Russian jets. Should listeners be boycotting Russian goods? Should they be applying to take in people fleeing from Ukraine? What should they be doing?
4: I think all of the above. And more. I, today, uh, made a donation to the DEC. It's a small token. That's the disasters
3: Emergency Committee. 14 charities have come together to raise money.
4: And that's a tiny, tiny step. It's a tiny move. But everybody's tiny move combined makes a massive message. So, So donate. Donate. I would also say, you know, if you can take people in and at the moment it's still a very fast moving situation and this is going to happen over days and weeks to come you know we have a million today it's likely to be 5 million in the next week or two so how do they do that well i think the government will be looking at this and working with um, our partners in europe working with the um, outstanding charities involved and there will be more information coming out remember what happened with the kinder transport you know i have i have very close friends whose Grandmothers were on the kinder transport and, you know...
3: That was Jewish children fleeing fleeing, from Nazi Germany.
4: My own parents-in-law were child evacuees from London out into the home counties and beyond. And so, you know, we will respond. I know the British people will respond in every way they can, but we, any economic sanction that we can support the government with, we must do. And we've all got to stand united, not just in this country, but across Europe, across the West and across the free world. Because, you know, this is an attack not just on Ukraine, but on all of us who believe in freedom and democracy.
3: Nikki, uh, Tory MP, and who's leading the effort by the Tory party and the government to be more welcoming to people fleeing the war zone in Ukraine. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. Pleasure. Well, that's all for this week, listeners. What's happening in Ukraine is obviously a fast-moving crisis, so do go to the Telegraph website to keep up to date and for the top analysis from our journalists on the ground and in London. If you're not a subscriber already, please go to telegraph.co.uk chopper to get your first month's access to our journalism completely free of charge. And we're launching a new daily podcast. Search for Ukraine, the latest, wherever you're listening to this. And if you're taking action to help Ukrainians, we would love to hear from you. Please email me, chopperspolitics chopperspolitics.telegraph.co.uk, or tweet me, I'm at chopperspodcast. And as ever, for more from me about what's happening in Westminster, please do sign up to my daily Choppers Politics newsletter, delivered every weekday into your email inbox. The link to sign up to that is in the show notes for this episode. And if that's not enough chopper for you, please don't forget to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column on the Telegraph website, 7pm every Friday and in Saturday's newspaper. So thank you to my guests this week, Lord Owen, Alicia Kromachuk and Nikki Akin. And I'll put a link to how to buy Alessia's book in the show notes of this episode. Thank you to my producers, Giles Gere, Louisa Wales and Theodora Lululis. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. And of course, if you can, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio!
0: Planning for your next trip?